Go ahead and take out your insert. I'll be reading from Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thank you, Teresa. Let me pray for us, and we'll look at that text. Father, we need the help of your Spirit to understand, to communicate, to receive, to be shaped. We believe that is your delight to do that very thing. So help us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Since the advent of the electric-powered subway car, a phrase crept into English called the third rail. And that is, you know, there are two rails that keep the train on the tracks, and a third rail, which provides power to one of the rails that makes it go. The third rail means you can touch either the two rails the train's on. If you touch the third rail, you die because it's electrified. Increasingly, in our culture, a passage like that was just read for us is a third rail passage. I don't know if you felt it, right? We live in a culture that, I mean, this is talking about the difference between husbands and wives in a culture that increasingly downplays or rejects any difference at all between men and women, right? And there's a profanity in here, too. That happened a couple times. It's an American profanity. It's the S word. Submit. In a country that's founded on we will have no king over us. So it's a little bit uh, electrified. And the temptation is not to touch it. The downside of that is you miss what the Lord has for you. So my actual concern in reading through this is, I don't know if you've ever seen a web page that you're reading through, and it's just got like a dozen hyperlinks in it. You can click on it, go somewhere else. My concern is we read through this, and there's a bunch of hyperlinks in here that you've already clicked in your mind and gone somewhere, and you all go to different places, right? So if I could, and maybe that's not the case, but if I could just, let's stay on the, let's stay on the page just for a second. 
and see what this might mean and have for us. We are in a series on what the church is, not New City necessarily, but the church, Christ's church. And when we, we've seen that when, when the New Testament talks about the church, it does envision a gathered people, not just one, but lots of gathered people who are bought by Christ and then gathered together. The word ecclesia, church, means assembly, gathered together. There's an assembled, gathered together people in heaven, the church on earth, which is the, the earthly expression of that heavenly reality. So we've been looking at the church, and today we're looking at this analogy of the church that has its roots in the Old Testament, in Hosea and Ezekiel, among other places, which is the church as the bride of Christ. The church corporate, collectively, as the bride of Christ. It is, however, embedded in this other passage, it was just read for us, where the Scripture is unfolding what it looks like for the gospel to be worked out in the family, and particularly in marriage. So... I want to address that for a couple minutes before we get to the picture of the bride. And what we have here is a sort of an upstream reality, the way Christ relates to his people, and then a downstream reality, a, a picture of that enfleshed in marriage that draws implications from that, though it's a, not a direct, you know, a one-for-one. One. It's, it's just an analogy. And so I want to talk about the downstream for a couple minutes and then get to the upstream, okay? And in your insert... I've laid the text out in the way the thought flows. This isn't how it will be in your Bible, but, you know, just kind of try, I try to lay it out so it shows how one thing modifies and hangs on is connected to another and, and so on and so forth. But it begins this way, and if you remember last week, Taylor talked about the first three chapters of Ephesians are theology. The last three chapters are uh, practical application of that theology. So th- this is in the, the practical application place. So here it begins, just jump in in verse 15, Paul the Apostles writing to the church in Ephesus, or many churches this would have been read and then passed on around the region. Look carefully then, verse 15, how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. This, by the way, is not an injunction against drinking alcohol, but against a way of life that is drunkenness. Okay? We're going to have communion in just a few minutes, and there's a lot of red wine over there. right? That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about a way of life where you're giving yourself to something more powerful than you, alcohol, and it's ruling your life. Instead of that, he's like, maybe that was going on a lot in that church, in that culture. Instead of that, he's like, give yourself to something else. The Spirit of the living God. So instead of being drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. And that is, that be filled there, for you nerds, is a present imperative passive participle, which means basically it could be be being filled with the Spirit. So it's a command for something to happen to you. Like, well, how does that work? Well, good news is he unfolds it. What does it look like to be being filled with the Spirit? Or maybe even what are the pathways in? So he, he says four things here. 19, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We take that to be worship. So we're in worship, we're singing to God, but we're singing to each other. So this is the outward form. Worship, y'all. Worship, sing. Give yourself to sing. We just sang. Some of us sang, right? I get it. Not all of us sing. Um, but even if you don't sing well, you can still sing. It says this, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So it's saying, don't just sing externally, but give yourself to it. So if you sing bad and you're concerned what people around you think when you're singing, some of you are in that boat. I occasionally am in that boat when I sing really loud. Be encouraged at this. Even if you sound terrible, the Lord loves it. 
Right? You're singing and making melody in your heart when you're singing. God's like, I love that kid. That's nasty, but I love that kid. Right? He can sing to me. I appreciate it. Verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with this internal disposition of thankfulness. Right? So singing, inclining our heart that way, being actively being thankful. And then finally here, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let me ask that word submitting, submit. Is that a negative word or a positive word in your mind? Submit, I'm, I think increasingly it is often considered a negative word because it it's, it's kind of carries the connotation, I think, and I could be wrong here, but of doing something you don't want to do or being forced to do something you don't want to do. So like in wrestling, we have a submission hold, right? That's like you, nobody wants that. It's a person winning, right? You make a dog submit to you, all this kind of stuff. Um, in the Scripture, however, there is, a, there is a very positive connotation to that. That word is just hupotasso. In the Greek, it means to put yourself under. It's, it's a way of showing honor to other people. In some cultures, when they greet each other, they don't shake hands. They, they bow to each other. That's a, that's a hupotasso. That's a submission posture. It's a showing honor to each other. So the picture here is this, the call to Scripture. like the Christian community is one where we are showing honor to each other. You know, functionally, treating others is more important than ourselves, which should sound strangely biblical because that's what Romans says. Treat each other as more important than ourselves. Putting ourselves under, putting ourselves under, putting ourselves under one another in the Christian community. Um, so it's a positive thing. Then the question is, how does this work out in the home and particularly in Marriage. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole time on marriage here because we're actually talking about the church. Paul begins to unfold this. So, you know, be filled with the Spirit, these four things, and then you got get down to submitting to each other, and he's going to, like, do a little rabbit trail, like, and here's what that looks like in marriage. And it's tied to something upstream, which is Jesus' relationship to the church. So how does it work, this mutual submitting to each other in marriage? And what we have to see at first, which we are, almost nobody's going to catch, is what Paul is doing here is a revolutionary thing. It was common in Greek and Roman ethical writing to, have, to write about what's called household codes. You write about how husbands and wives act together and then how the family acts with kids. And if there's household servants, how they're you know, to act toward the servants. And that's what's happening here. Except in the Roman system, the pater familius, the father of the family, the head of the family, the, the man of the family had absolute, absolute and total control and dominance over the family. There was no questioning his authority. He could do what he wanted to whom he wanted whenever he wanted, and there was no pushback allowed in that culture from the family. And he could do whatever he wanted with whomever he wanted outside the family, and there was nothing the family, including the wife, could say catch what I'm saying. And Ephesians is coming in and saying, Pater Familius, here's what modifies all of your relationship with the family, submitting to one another. You too are under authority, and you must submit in some way to the good of your family. It's a radical thing that Ephesians is doing here. Lost on us after years. Why is it lost on us? Because it was effective. Because the Gospels had an effect in Western culture for now 20 centuries, and it's the norm. 
right? Okay. And here's, here's what this, I'm going to read it and then work back through it. Remember, don't click the hyperlinks. Here we go. Number, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So catch out what's happening here in the outline. Be filled with the Spirit, these four ways, submitting. And now we're going to talk what that looks like for husbands and wives. And I I never really like doing this. Sometimes it's necessary to do this because I don't want you to distrust your translations, but I have to make a little adjustment to what's written in here. If you have the New American Standard Version, you already have that in your version. Uh, Verse 22, where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. That word submit is not in the Greek. It's not. It's supplied by the translators to help us understand the flow of thought. It's necessary so it makes the English flow. It is not there. But what he is saying is submitting to one another. Okay, let's work it out. Wives and husbands. Let's work it out. Next paragraph, husbands and wives. It is talking about some form of submitting to each other, first addressing the wives, then addressing the husbands. Here's how I think this all works together. I'm summarizing this because this isn't the main point. But you can't go past it, right? But if you touch it, you die. It's, it's a tough thing for a preacher. Okay. Um, I'm going to say this a couple times. I think here's how the, it's constructed. And this is the ideal, right? We all know the ideal is often not the real. But here's the design pattern in the gospel. The husband submits himself for his wife. The husband submits himself for his wife by laying down his life for her in self-sacrificial, Christ-like leadership. That's the call. Oh, that's all. Just like Jesus did. Husband submits himself for his wife by laying down his life for her in self-sacrificial leadership as Christ did the church. The wife then submits to her husband in loving response to that leadership. Mutual submission in different ways. Submitting for the wife, submitting to the husband. Does that work perfectly? (laughs) Does it ever work perfectly? No. It's the ideal that's being painted here. And when the dance of marriage is working, that's the picture often. The husband submits for the wife, the wife submits to the husband. The dance is often awkward. We often step on each other's toes. Um, but this is the ideal picture. Now, why is this so hard? For only, there's only two reasons this is hard. Okay? Men and women. That's it. Men. That um, some men most of the time, and all men some of the time, do not love well. That's the problem with men. What's the problem with women? That some women, most of the time, and all women, some of the time, do not love well. That's, that's the problem. So other than those two problems, this has got no problem at all. Um, now, obviously, I'm joking somewhat, but the dance is hard. But this is the design pattern. And when, when you step on each other's toes in the dance, what do you do? Walk away from the dance? No. Now, I'm, admittedly, I'm talking about dancing I can't dance. 
Um, I said in, in the first service, the worst part of my daughters getting married is I have to dance with them in front of other people. They're terrible. And it's not like square dancing where you know the steps. Um, the, the, the dance is hard. You step on each other's toes. You don't walk away from the dance. We say, okay, let's resync this thing and look upstream to the source. Look upstream to the source. Okay, what about this whole head of the wife thing? Um, so it says, verse 22, uh, 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself for the Savior. Uh, we don't actually just get to make up what that means. As good Bible readers, we actually have to say, what does it mean in the text, in context? And we say, Did, does Paul ever talk about this? I don't know. The last chapter, a few verses before he's talking about this. Christ is the head of the church, and if you go back there, you see what the, in context what that picture is, is the head is giving direction and provision. That's the role. There is, a, it's authority in some way, but it's very soft. It's like, it's authority to care, authority to give life, authority to help, authority to lay down his life, a good authority, right? Uh, one commentator wrote that the, in this context, F.F. F. Bruce, British commentator, the function of the head is to plan for the safety of the body, to secure it from danger, and to provide for its welfare. And again, we're talking about the ideal, right? Go. So what does this mean? How does this work out on the ground? Talk to husbands just for a second. Um, I love you. I think what this means, at the very least, is that we as husbands, so husbands, those who will be husbands, those who encourage husbands, that should include God, everybody. Um, our job is to be ultimately responsible for the spiritual tone of the family. Okay? It doesn't mean we have to do everything. Doesn't mean doesn't just like at the end of the day, who's going to be responsible? And, and 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 husbands have to say, "That's me. That's me. I'm not going to abdicate my responsibility." Okay. Um. I know it's hard. I've failed at this 10,000 times, at least. Some of you have been encouraged by a phrase I heard years ago from a seminary professor who said, blessed is the man who keeps restarting family devotions. I'm like, yeah, I've been blessed many times. Not that family devotions are the key, just like, you, what are we doing? We're, we keep restarting, right? We're stumbling. If you don't, if you know, not sure what this might look like in your own home, come and talk to me. Talk to one of your elders. Talk to Taylor. Like, we're not... We're stumbling in this, stumbling forward, hopefully, but we can stumble forward together. This is the ideal design pattern. Now, we realize that in many situations, it's not ideal, right? That's okay. That's okay. God is good. The Spirit is, is fresh and rich and powerful. So, um, one, you know, sometimes we say that the, the husband is designed to be the thermostat of the home, to set the spiritual temperature, okay? um, the, the life-giving tone. It works best. It's the ideal. But even if it's not the ideal, the Lord is more than powerful to make up for it. I grew up in a home where that was not the case. Right? And the Lord blessed all of our family anyway. Kids walking with the Lord. So hang in there. Okay. Uh, verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, that, that can't mean everything. Right? If your husband says, hey, babe, let's go rob a bank, you would say, that's a bad plan for me, and you should probably rethink right, career decisions here. It's not working. 
Um, again, if you go to the gas station and somebody asks you for money, you give them your last $5 and say, hey, do you have any more? You're like, no, that's all I have. I've given you everything I have. You don't actually mean that you've given everything you have. It's modified by the context. You could go to the bank. You could sell your car. You could take a second mortgage on your house. You haven't given them everything. You're just given everything you have. The immediate context determines that that's what this is talking about. You, the wife submits to the husband and all of the loving leadership that he is giving for the flourishing and good of the family. That's what this means. Okay. That's the ideal picture. Now, what is, okay, just a couple observations. This will not get much applause from our culture. Okay? That's a lot. I mean, we're, yeah, it's a little bit late in the game to look for cultural applause. You might even get criticism. Oh, well, you know, Jesus was executed because he loved perfectly. Um, This has nothing to do with domineering and getting our own way. Part of the hyperlinks are caused because there's been pain and abuse, and I want to affirm that that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And it's extra painful because it's not the way it's supposed to be, and we're designed for goodness in that very area where when badness comes in, it's extra painful. So if, the, you, if this is about in your mind, like, oh, finally, I can get my way, and the Bible says it, I would say, you are missing what it's saying, and you will not be filled by the Holy Spirit. Is that a strong statement? It says it right here. This is not about domineering. It's not about forcing. It's not about getting our own way. It's about mutually serving each other for the flourishing of the gospel in our marriage. So it's a display for the love of God for the world and to our children and to our church. That's what it's about. It will be expressed differently in different times. This doesn't look the same as in 2021 as it would in, say, 1951 or 1851 or 51 AD. It might look different because culture changes, but we don't want to... uh, Confuse that for the enduring expression of the design pattern. Okay? So please don't, it doesn't mean that you'll look like the Cleaver family from the Leave it to Beaver. It doesn't mean that. What does it mean? It means loving submission for the wife, loving submission to the husband for good and flourishing. But we know it's an enduring reality because it's a downstream thing connected to a permanent enduring upstream reality which is Christ's love for his people. So if Christ doesn't love his people anymore, then this will go away. It's not going away. It is broken by sin. And when it's broken by sin, we look upstream. So let's do that. What does the upstream picture give us? What, what has Jesus done for his church, and what is he doing for his church? Verse 25 again, Husbands, loves your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, you know, I, I need to say this somewhere in here. The, word, the church here, when the church is the bride of Christ, that's a collective term. We don't want to talk about it distributively. What I mean is this. Men, individually, you're not the bride of Christ. That's just weird. Like that's not, and that's also not what the text says. Collectively, the church is the bride of Christ. Individually, women or men, you are not the bride of Christ. Collectively, we as the church are the bride of Christ. This will become more clear. There's a theologian, uh, uh, intellect named, uh, intellectual named Leon Pottles, who wrote a book called The Church Impotent, who was asking the question, why in the evangelical church, and especially the mainline church, is there are so many more women present than men? And one of his major theses was it's because this picture of the bride of Christ has gotten particularized, atomized, or individualized way too much, and, and men, and it over-feminizes everything, and men are like, I'm not sure about this whole bride of Christ thing, peace out. So I don't know if that's the case or not, but it's not what it's saying. The whole 
corporate church is the bride of Christ. What does it mean that he loved her and gave himself for her? Um, that's I, I'm just seeing this for the first time, like the, the personalization of calling the church her in that. It's a rabbit trail I don't want to chase right now, but it's, um, it's okay. Um, he lo- there's something that happened in the past. He loved the church. That's an intentional, completed action. John 10, 18, Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. God, second person of the Godhead, the creator, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, stepped into this world, took on human flesh so that he could give his life for his people to win for himself a bride. He loved her. And there's that's flowing into this time. That's a, it's a past completed action with permanent ongoing reality. But this is an invitation for us to lift our eyes to what the church is. Yes, in all its brokenness. Yes, in all its problems. But look at what Jesus has given to get a people, even a, a small people like this on the east side of India. He loved her and gave himself for her. It's a It's a breathtaking reality. Why? Verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He's got an intention in giving himself to her. Sanctify is a... It's a a word means set apart. He's put the church in a new status. We are... uh, We are that, that... The earthly picture of the heavenly reality now. We have a status of being in Christ. It doesn't mean we're perfect yet. It means we have a status which our lives will eventually catch up to, or actually it'll eventually catch up to our lives. Uh, John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, "Uh, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Here, he cleanses the church by the washing of the water of the word. Right, we take that to mean the gospel message that comes to us and it lands on our hearts and it opens our eyes and our minds and our imaginations to see the beauty of Christ and it, and it uh, changes us from the inside out. That's the word that he spoke to us. That's the word that made us clean. And if you see what's happening here, the picture is a, a bride getting cleansed and ready for marriage. So this is really, we say bride, but this is almost like the, the fiance, the bride-to-be. Getting ready for marriage. But Jesus does for the bride what the bride normally does or the attendants of the bride normally do. He cleanses her because she can't do it herself. I get to do a lot of weddings. I've married some of you guys in here. It's been awesome. And before the wedding, I get a timeline of events. So if the wedding is like 4 o'clock, preacher has to show up at like, I don't know, 3.30. I just had to be there. It doesn't even matter, right? Now I try to show up a little bit ahead so everybody doesn't nervous. He may not show up. So if the wedding's at 4, I got to show up at 3.30. Uh, the groom's party has to show up at like two. Why? Just to make sure the guys are going to be there, really. It's just going to like, then they show up. Four o'clock, I show up at 3.30, guys show up at two. When do those bridal parties show up? I don't know, say 8 a.m. or 9, I don't know. It's not, and it's fine, it's awesome. Why? Because there's preparation that has to be made. There's preparation, not in every case, but, you know, generally. And there's Makeup that has to be done, the hair has to be done, everything has to be done. You know what? I've never seen a bride that doesn't look beautiful. The bride always looks awesome. Why? A lot of preparation's been made. And she's got natural beauty, of course. But there's a lot of preparation that's been made. 
Um, in that culture, it was even more of a more pageantry. Weddings, the wedding party lasted like a week, and it was harder to get clean in that culture. If you know what I'm saying, right? Um, and so this beautiful thing that the, the bride would have been heavily invested in and the bride attendants would have been heavily invested in, the groom does because the bride could not do it for the church. There is no spot or blemish that we could have removed that would have made us ready for the groom. So Jesus does it himself. How? He loved us and gave himself for us at the cross. He makes us ready. He sets us apart. He beautifies his people because we could not do it ourselves. The groom does for the bride what she couldn't do. Why is that? Verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We've said that we're set apart in Christ now, but that day has not yet come. We're still looking forward to something. And it is in Revelation 21. It's on the other side of your insert. These words point to it back here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's coming. That fullness is coming. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Hebrews 12, where he said the the church is the earthly expression of the heavenly reality. The church is the shadow of the vibrant reality that is in heaven, the heavenly assembly. And one day, one day, that heavenly assembly comes down and it meets with the shadow, and all things become new. And that which was hidden, that's that which we tasted, we become we become full and complete. That day is coming. That day is not yet. That day is coming. We taste of it now. But that day is coming full in the future as a bride adorned for her husband, coming down out of heaven from God. Application here. Again, it's to invite us to lift our eyes to see the church with the vision that Jesus sees the church with. Realistic about her flaws, delighted in her beauty. Beauty that he made, but a beauty, a certain beauty, a definite beauty. And um, this is not just like, this isn't your pastor and elders just saying this because we're pastors and elders and we want you to like the church. Like, we become pastors and elders because this is how we see the church. It's a beautiful thing. You're a beautiful people. A beautiful people. Who says that? Jesus says that. He's given himself for you. And the invitation is, I dare you to see that. I dare you to see that for each other. Now, there's, there's an incompleteness. And there's a warning here, kind of, I think, of being aware of the discontentment that a utopian vision can bring, right? Demanding that Revelation 21's already happened, that the fullness has already come. We carry around in us these longings that are so good and in the right direction, but they are not complete until they're complete. And as we're built, like we're built for community, and the community will be good, but it won't be that good until the completeness of it. And you kind of feel this. But if we demand, 
If we demand that the completeness already come right now, we look around when we say, well, this ain't complete. There's a problem. Okay, let me just front, let me, don't, I don't want to bury the lead. There's a problem. There's all kinds of problems. We're not complete. And though the community will be good, it will never be enough. Though the music might be good, it will never be complete. It will leave us longing for more. Though the preaching might be adequate, it won't it might always leave us longing for more. Though the, 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 the goodness and the strength and the diversity of community will be good, it will always leave us longing for more. Why? Because there's more coming. And a demanding idealist utopianism was just so divisiveness and, and discontent. I'm not, I don't get that so much in the New City community, but beware, beware, right? Jesus has set us apart for a purpose. That's to present us beautiful in the future. Now, we don't want to become just sort of lazy and satisfied with the status quo, but let's be realistic about where we are in the story. Okay. We may be realistic about where we are in the story, but I'm not sure where in the sermon we're supposed to be. Nonetheless, let's just move on and say, what, what is he doing now? Verse 28. Uh, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but, here we go, nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. There's a, a past reality. He loved us and gave himself for us. There's a future reality. He will present us. What's he doing now? What's Jesus doing in heaven, heavenly realms right now? Well, maybe lots of things, but two things we know that he is doing right now this year, this decade, this day, this moment, nourishing and cherishing his church as he does right now. Nourishing is a feeding word. Cherishing is a, an affection and protection word. This is what he's doing right now. If, sometimes we want to say something like, oh, I really want to see God work. I really want to see him do something powerful. Okay, cool, I'm all for that. Listen. If you believe in Jesus, you are a living miracle because you were completely dead in your sin. And he resurrected your, your life. That's Ephesians 2. He's resurrected you. Oh, that's God working. And what's he doing right now? He's nourishing what he, the miracle. <laughs> He's sustaining the miracle. Like, that's pretty good. So if we're saying, I really want to see God work, Jesus might be saying, I'm right here, but okay. Right? This, and so how does he nourish us? Through his word and through his spirit corporately, as we read the Bible, as we reflect on it, as we bask in his love, as we come to the communion table. Cherishing is a protecting word. How does he cherish the church community? Through each other, the mutual building up of the body of Christ, encouraging one another daily, Hebrews theory, so we're strengthened against sin and against folly. Praying for each other, that's, how, that's his provident care. So what? just some application here at the end. One, we got to eat. He nourishes us. We come, we hear the word. We read it. We teach it to our children. We teach it to each other. We meditate on it. We exercise what's called the means of grace. We'll talk about those more in the future. But like just word, prayer, community, we give ourselves to the nourishing God delights to give to us. We help others eat. We participate with Jesus in the cherishing. It could be small very easy things. Uh, we have a work day coming up this Saturday from 9 a.m. to noon, just as a small commercial. What will we be doing? Well, we will be doing some outside things. It's in your bulletin. Oh, and we'll actually be participating with God in the cherishing of the church. That's all. That's, these are practical ways on the ground that God does what he says right here, nourish and cherish. You'll be with brothers and sisters. You'll be doing stuff, serving, 
That's good. Uh, I do want to say to you, you all feel this, right? 2021 is, I don't know, if it's the, by God's grace, the end of a very long 18 or 20 months where community, because of COVID, has gotten thinned out. It's really hard. We, we learned, first, we learned to be home and stay home. We learned to go to work by rolling out of our bed and going to our computer, some of us, um, which I'm not, I'm thankful for that, right? Um, but then we, it's hard to unlearn some of that, where there's always there's a little bit of a film sometimes between us. We're like, I'm not quite sure. We used to hug, but I'm not sure if that's good. We used to go to each other's homes, but not quite sure. Can we just acknowledge it's difficult? That's a difficult thing. So we just got to keep talking about it and working it through and asking questions and not being offended and pressing in because you are the means by which we uh, participate in God's cherishing of the church by encouraging each other daily. And that is the primary reality. The love for Christ is upstream to everything else. Finally here, verse 31, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Like, marriage is very good. It's a, it's a good gift, sometimes, but it's, a, it's a definitely a good gift from God. It works out not so good sometimes, but often very good. But even as good as it might be, what this is saying is, oh, it's not ultimate by any stretch of the imagination, because there's something far upstream from that the love of Christ for his people. And the invitation in passages like this is to, one, enjoy that because you're part of it. And then, two, we want to map our, the affections of our heart onto that and participate with Jesus in it because he's, he's doing that work. And he's saying, come, come with me. Let's pray, and we'll go to the table. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for um, the gift of your spirit and your tenacity for your people. We pray that we may be ravished with it all over again. In your name, amen.